It's ad break time. I'm proud to announce that the Beyond Solitaire podcast is sponsored by Central Michigan University's Center for Learning Through Games and Simulations. And as usual, they are up to some amazing things. Their next game, Hydrologic Cycle, is scheduled to come to Kickstarter on March 26th. CLGS also continues to offer classes in partnership with Gen Con. The next course, Classroom Game Design, Yes We Can, will be taught by one of my absolute favorite teacher gamers, Dr. Christiane Hintz. It begins on March 4th, and you should definitely sign up for it. I'll also include a final plug for myself. If you like the show and want to support it, you can do so by going to patreon.com slash beyondsolitaire. Thanks to listeners like you, I've been able to keep upgrading my equipment, subscribing to StreamYard, and more. But for now, let's get on with the show. Hey gamers, this is Liz Davids from Beyond Solitaire, and this week on the pod, I'm here with a very special guest. This is Dr. Henry Lowood, and he is the Harold C. Hobach Curator at Stanford, which entails a lot of things. So Henry, tell us more about your job. Oh, my job. What do I do? Uh, I'm responsible for some collections at Stanford. So I'm, I'm the guy who brings in the stuff in history of science and technology and also the film and media collections. And in addition to that, or as part of that, I run something called the Silicon Valley Archives at Stanford. So we have our own exhibit space and we do our own programs and help people who want to do research in history of science or film and media studies. And for this podcast, uh, the most interesting thing is that the game collections that we've been building at Stanford now for about 25 years um, have been, you know, through my work and through the collecting areas that I kind of preside over. So if I recall correctly from Googling, um, y'all were the first video game archive at a university. Is that correct? That is correct. The um, I've stated that in writing and uh, at numerous conferences. Nobody's contradicted yet. Uh, we were the first institution to collect a historical software collection. And this collection, the Stephen Cabernetti collection, uh, consists 80% of games because 80% of the titles published in the 80s and late 70s and early 90s were games. That's the range of this collection, 70s to early 90s. Um, to that time, the only institution that had done anything really with games at all, game software, uh, was the Library of Congress. But that was not because they brought in a collection. That was because people were depositing things there. So we were the first to you know, acquire a collection of about 20,000 software titles and you know, magazines, books, uh, 75 platforms, you know, consoles and things like that. So that was a big collection. And we're still um, conducting projects around what to do with all that stuff. Yeah, I have many questions about what one does with all that stuff. Uh, but uh, first, I just wanted to ask, do you feel, I guess maybe we'll get here over the course of this conversation, but something I kind of want to define the rest of the episode is, how have things changed in terms of academic institutions taking games seriously, treating them as something that should be preserved and studied? Um, you know, I feel like your career has really spanned like a full range of, you know, oh, nobody's ever done that before. So I think things are very different now. Um, so do you have any general comments about that before we kind of circle back a few times throughout the course of the conversation? Oh, yeah. Well, your instinct's correct. Massively change. So the Cabernet collection we acquired uh, sort of nailed it down 98, 99, somewhere in there. Um, now and then you'll see people in game studies referring to the year 2000 as the year zero of game studies, right? So we actually are, you know, BC or whatever that would be. Yeah. Uh, as far as that goes. 
Um, and I remember in the first few years, there were several places like UC Irvine, for example, that had, had an initiative to introduce a game studies masters. That was probably like around 2002, 2003, something like that. And the faculty senate voted it down. Um, you know, there's thumbs down to that. Uh, so for preservation, game studies, everything, in the early 2000s, uh, there wasn't much going on. You know, it was just barely starting. I remember, I jokingly say this sometimes in front of the library director, and he always corrects me uh, because he was very supportive. I'd make this joke that basically I'm, I brought this collection in and I wasn't fired. Um, and, you know, he'll just say, no, 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 I was, yeah, and of course he supported what I did. But um, it was, you know, I just said, said a few seconds ago that we're still conducting projects around this collection. We had no idea what to do with this stuff also. And, you know, say circa 2000, so we've been doing, we've been going through a series of funded projects in the federal government, kind of in the order of the workflow you would expect from something like this. We've done a project preserving virtual worlds and what to collect and how to collect it. We did the, the game citation project on how to catalog games. We did a project with the National Institute for Standards and Technology about how to get, how to uh, pull the software off of obsolete uh, media and all those things. So we've done all these projects to sort of figure out each step of the way. We're still in a stage where we're figure, figuring out access to the collection. We're doing projects around emulation right now. Um, it, and it really was uh, just not knowing. It was uh, not even to the point of, do people, is this legitimate or not? Uh, but there were just questions around the basic steps of acquiring, cataloging, uh, providing access, citation for scholars. None of that was in place. Likewise, game studies, what, you know, the people who would be the customers in a way for a collection like this, that field was just coming together. So at the time, it was difficult to know what would be needed for, for that kind of work. Um, you know, you fast forward to today, uh, game studies, I would say, is a thriving field. There's loads of programs now, uh, certainly at the master's level. I think more, more of the PhD level work, graduate work is being done in uh, traditional departments. So in a history department or film studies department or media studies uh, group or something like that. Um, but people are coming out with PhDs. There's a whole new generation of scholars now who are changing the field dramatically. And in the preservation world, we've figured out a lot of it. In fact, I would say today for digital games, not for board games, but for digital games, the main obstacles are no longer technical. The main obstacles are probably legal, um, you know, for distribution and access to, to what we've done. But we can, we can handle and we can distribute games through various means that are now in place that we, had, you know, weren't even a twinkle in anybody's eye 20 years ago. They, they just didn't exist. So it's, it's literally kind of a literally, I guess I'll say literally, uh, it's a <laughs> night and day kind of thing uh, where night, it was, um, very uncertain. Now, I'll say as a curator, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, one of the things I like to do is to try to figure out a field that is about to break open and then to try to anticipate the kinds of materials that would be needed for a field like that. I'm not scared of media, other, you know, when they're not printed books, you know, if there's a digital, if digital media involved or things like that, it doesn't scare me. Um, and I just, hope that my colleagues in you know the library will 
will go along with me to do that because none of this would have been remotely possible just by myself. Man, this is super interesting. So, you know, you mentioned that you no longer have as many concerns about the technical ability to preserve uh, digital games. Um, so, I, how do how do you how are you sure? I guess the thing I always worry about, you know, like CDs go bad. Um, you know, the old hard drives. You know, I had to explain to my students what the save symbol on Word was at school in recent years because they don't know what a floppy disk looks like. Yeah. Um, you know. Uh, how how do you preserve things, especially knowing that the thing you're probably preserving them on is also ephemeral in the long run? Yeah, so um, I will, boy, if I have to caveat what I said a little bit. Um, <laughs> let me, uh, and then I'll answer the question. Um, yeah. The caveat is um, the game the game distribution mechanisms of today in the last five to eight years have transformed my statement about we can do everything with te technology, the legal, you know, the legal things remain obstacle. Um, many of the techniques that we can use now to and easily handle games from say the 1980s, 1990s are no longer valid in the in the era of siloed stores, mobile games software as a service you know where games are updated every day in some in some cases you know stuff like that and so that's the caveat about the technology i don't think we will ever if we think of the software part of it as a library okay uh i don't think that library will be complete in the future so a game like uh take again i'll take something i, I play like eafc which is a fifa former fifa series game um that's a game that's updated every day um, and depends on a community of millions of people to play it. There isn't going to be, I don't know what the playing of that, uh, what you would have to preserve that. You'd have to make so many decisions about the updating of the software, what versions you would use, what kind of experience you would deliver, and all of that. I think it would, it would be extremely difficult. Not so much because you couldn't do what you wanted to do with technology, but because so many resources would be involved in standing up that technology and so many decisions mm. would have to be made. Uh, so that's my, you know, so caveat, but my answer to that in part is that that's the library and we can go with different approaches to the library that will deliver something to the historian of the future, let's say. So that could be video recordings of say a, a thing that happens in a massively multiplayer game that could be people could record videos and screenshots because standing up world of warcraft in 2100 uh with no player community where it's just the gra you know the graphical world and some of the affordances that you some of the things you can do you know you, you can kill a monster and that sort of thing but there's nobody in it it's not particularly interesting it doesn't tell you much about the way the game was played in in you know our era but a, a video recording of things that happen or recording a blog of somebody who's telling you about their experiences the world be more important and that's the, the the key thing we don't have to preserve the library doesn't have to just be we've perfectly assembled authentic versions of games running on the original platforms and all that we can figure out ways to deliver that differently but the other key component of this is documentation so um we have we assemble 
documents relating to games and to the experiences that players had in game worlds and things like that, you get a pretty good idea. And guess what? That's what historians do anyway. Historians don't live in the 19th century when they write about it. They use documents to to to, to uh, learn about the experiences of people who lived at that time. And I think that would be the same for game players. And likewise, for also for game design, you'd want to have developer notebooks. Uh, you'd love to have a few games that are where the development process was very was, de- was documented in a very detailed way, so you could you could follow that. It's it's complicated to do that, by the way, but um, I think we end up coming back to a position that's very similar to archiving history in general. You know that it's not we don't when we think about record you know the, what his, history historical documents will be left about the first Gulf War. We're not talking about actually being in some kind of simulator of that world because that then would be our experience. Uh, Rather, we want to know what people at that time experienced, and for that we need to uh, intelligently assemble all kinds of documentation, visual, written, you know, all kinds of things. And I think we need to do that for games too. So when you mentioned intelligent assembly, I was actually going to ask, so you kind of led me here, um, what role do things like Let's Plays and game reviews and think pieces about games uh, play in the archive? Um, So clearly a role, but so then my question would be, how do you select what goes into the archive and then what kind of work is involved in archiving those aspects of our lives? Yeah, um, first of all, the player community, uh, we're talking about digital games again, uh, the player community has been, for the most part, generally ahead of institutions in doing things uh, for documentation, whether it's um, analyzing the way the software works, whether it's figuring out how to get software to run in some way, uh, but also, you know, in many ways, assembling documents like people people having a rare game magazine and scanning it and putting it on the Internet Archive, that kind of activity. Those are, are all really important. And the thing about it is, um, I think games present a very unique opportunity to do that because uh, players participate in a very fundamental way in games, maybe in a different way from readers, say, for books or viewers for movies. Uh, they're actually in part documenting, you know, any game that they've played in part, part of it is documenting their own experience in that game. It's it, because each gameplay is, is going to be different. Um, but players have played a huge part in that. And the thing to keep in mind is that if you look at the history of libraries and museums, it's kind of always been the case that institutions rely on individuals outside the institutional world to um, build collections and con- you know convey them in some way to institutions. If you think about Smithsonian, you know the biggest brand in the museum and library world, it started as Smithson's collection, right? You know, and his, and the stuff that he had put together. Or any library has numerous named collections, uh, things that people have given the library. And like, likewise, I think in the game in, in the game world, people will begin to put uh, together collections. In some cases, they'll deposit them with libraries. We're already assembling archives in some cases that have been given to us by developers, Steve Moretzky, people like that. Or, or we've, um, as we, we were talking about before, we're also interested in 
documentation about the whole culture around games, you know, the podcasts, let's play videos, um, all sorts of things like that. Um, you may know, I don't know if you knew this, I, I uh, did a lot of my work on the history of Machinima on early, you know, uh, game-based film movie making. And that's uh, work that was done entirely by the play player community. So the, all of those um, films should be preserved. I started a kind of a collection at the Internet Archive to do that. Uh, that's very, very uh, important. I think people should feel uh, that they can do something like that if they want to. And the, the step I, I would like to see taken next, I guess, by a lot of institutions is to create uh, linkages between the institutions who are, you know, in a position that they can ensure that things are preserved. Uh, you know, a collector, um, unfortunately, has a limited time on earth. And at some point, uh, something's going to happen to that collection. And yes, occasionally a family will preserve it. But in most cases, um, it's going to be difficult. And so it's, it's, it's a good idea to start forging those collection those connections with institutions to ensure that the work people is as you know what what people have done is preserved as documentation for future historians oh that's really interesting so speaking of historical work so you're a curator but you are also a historian and you do historical work related to gaming including board gaming um yep. so uh, i know that you've done a lot over the you know the course of a career you've covered lots of different stuff but um what are some of the topics that you have enjoyed as a historian as well as a collector of materials um the 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 biggest most general answer to that question for me is that while i have occasionally written about design related things or business related things uh what interests me the most historically is what players do uh and that's both board games and um digital games, you know, for example, uh, I did one piece for Zine uh, on the history of um, play by mail um, with war games. And I used the, you know, what collection we have at Stanford, but I also used my own personal archive of playing by mail and, um, you know, what that, how that happened and what it also, what it also means uh, both historically and also for the archive, those kinds of collections. So that's the sort of general answer is i'm i'm my my uh blood pressure goes up a little more if i discover something having to do with players you know i get a little more excited um specifically uh i would say the, the category i use to describe my interest is and I'm, I'm on the cusp of starting to write about this as something is what i've called non-fiction gaming um so that would mean games for which the theme is something related to activity in the real world. Uh, for me personally, that's three broad categories, sports games, war games, and historical games. So Ooh, uh, and that's my, like yeah, that, well, that's my, if you look at what I have, I've, I haven't played a shooter. I haven't played a fantasy game uh, or anything like that. Shooter that's based on a fantasy environment or any of those kinds of things probably for about 20 years now. I've just, I just at a certain point, at 20 is exaggerated, let's say. Yeah, at a certain point, I felt like both from a design perspective and thematically, those things had run their course pretty much. I love Tolkien, but there are only so many fantasy games, you know, uh, for, for me. Whereas, 
you know, basing games on reality uh, uh, gives you, you know, so many more opportunities uh, to do things. Uh, and I realize this is just, you know, just my personal preference. But yeah, so that's those are the kinds of games that I play. And I've been thinking more about, uh, you know, what that means. Uh, we did, we did uh, myself and uh, Carlin Wing and Ray Gwynns did a book on FIFA a few years, a couple years ago. A bunch of essays about that game, and you know, it's, it's you get into a, a lot of issues. I know you've written some about this sort of thing about how uh, game design and play and all that um, interacts with what's going on in, in the world. So, if you play a game um, like Votes for Women, you know, you're going to start encountering issues uh, that you know that result in a reflection on how history relates to you know your current circumstances or, or games about as there have been games recently about that touch themes around identity and racism and slavery and and those kinds of issues um that to me is uh just fascinating you know that uh, the problem that the designers face in producing games like that each on a you know maybe on a completely different thing that happened in the world and then also the way that players digest those games and relate them to their experience personally, but also maybe to thinking about the world, you know, the, the things that are happening in the world right now. So I, that's that's kind of my wheelhouse. Then I would say is um, uh, I love to, I guess, players and nonfiction games pr pretty much would summarize it. I like it. I like it, especially. Yeah, I think um, in a way. You know, I didn't really know what I wanted for my podcast when I started it. Uh, but I think that going through, it's basically, um, you know, there's no such thing as just a game. And the reason for that is that every time you play a game, uh, something's happening to you in terms of how you interact with the game and how it makes you think. Um, I think for me, the thing that makes historical gaming specifically so interesting is that it it gives me something to grip onto when I'm doing, I guess, critical work, because we already have ways of talking about history. You know, like you're, you're telling what you think happened, but then as you do that, you're also telling on yourself in some way, even if you can't tell it, even if people in our culture can't see it. Um, and I guess I kind of feel like that's also what you're doing with your archive. So looking back on some of the things that you've collected so far, um, what do you think that your work has revealed about gamers in our our modern times like if we were going to go look through uh, somebody in the future what are some of the th conclusions they might draw from what you collected so far well from the collections yeah um one well one thing that i think might find interesting um if you know where to look is that a lot there were uh, quite a few connections between um, games, and this covers this would touch board games and digital games alike. As you, and this cover, I would say, cover a, a lengthy period of time from the from the 60s uh, into the 21st century. Is the connection between games and simulations and um, activities of the government and the military, and you know. Uh, that kind of thing. We have quite a few collections that relate to that. You know, like we have the the archives of the seventy three Easting simulation, which was the one done after the first Gulf War that led to a lot of the funding that poured in in the nineties. But also, 
the SimNet platform that that was based on provided, a, if not directly in terms of technology, but at least the model for a lot of the massively multiplayer games of the 90s and, and you know the early 2000s, that kind of thing. You know, you have these large games where you can fly through the environments and do all kinds of things and all of that. Just likewise, you could look at things like um, like in the board game world uh, that are educational games that were uh, you know a massively understudied topic. I would say neglected totally is how many uh, um, mostly non-digital, but it's also on computer. How many games were produced uh, often by academics in the 60s and 70s around economics, social, very social uh, interaction kind of topics, relationships, uh, education, you know, things like that. Fields that are broadly in the social sciences realm, but were done in the at universities for the most part. We have quite a few of those. I mean, these aren't the things that, um, you know, people say, oh my God, they've got uh, a bunch of, they've got an Infocom archive, you know, something like that, you know, which is really exciting to people who play who play games. But we also, you know, we have things like, uh, there was a game called SimU. I can't remember if it's called SimU or Sim University right now, actually. Shame on me. Anyway, it was a game based on Stanford, actually, by the former pro, <laughs> uh, the former, um, uh, I think it was the assistant provost of the university, or the former controller of the university, went off to a foundation, and he funded uh, a pretty well-known game designer uh, to, and he sort of had all these interviews with the game designer about how Stanford worked, and they created this game as a commercial game, did all right, the game designer reasonably well, well known around you know running a user a university um that's something um i've read you know next to nothing about is that whole relationship between games and and the the both the the state you know united in the united states and also um the university world the academic world um there's a lot to say about those kinds of games and if we you know if you think about it some of the fundamental games we do know about came from universities as well, like Space War, you know, was done at MIT, or the Infocom games, Zork, you know, games like that were, were done at universities. Those were more entertainment types of games, but still. So that would be one thing, I guess, maybe would be um, available to people through our archives that in the future that, may, you know, might be interesting. Um, we also have quite a bit that emphasizes... Um, maybe like the cultural dynamics around games i'd mentioned uh i'd mentioned like the the no don't die podcast uh the david wolinski's podcast we have the archives of that uh, of that um we've also got things like um because of the silicon valley archives we have things like uh the hacker community and how that how they interacted with games so um uh, the Homebrew Computer Club, for example, there were a surprising number of things in 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 their newsletter and, uh, about games, and th those would be available to people to do research on. So it's not just I'm emphasizing things that are not like in the what you would tr consider the traditional game design world, where it's for business sure. purposes and somebody's designing it. There are a lot of other things going on around games at other kinds of places. People just designing technology or working at universities and thinking of games as another way of of creating knowledge about those subjects um 
it, so that's available in our archives, um, you know, as well as, you know, a bunch of Nintendo games. Fantastic. So kind of back to play by mail. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about this because my friend oh. Fred Serval from Homo Ludens and I do a series called Wargame Archaeology together mm-hmm. where we've been reading through the general and like we got on Castle yeah. and we played D-Day and like we're, we're trying to go back and kind of like get a glimpse right of the history yeah. of our hobby. So very good. What how many people uh, who played by mail kept was it common to keep archives of your of your play by mail? Are there a lot of people who did it other than you? And and what did you discover about yourself as you were looking through that stuff? So, was it common? I think it was uh, because. Uh, should I? Uh, what do you think? Do, does everybody listening to this know how play by mail worked? Uh, um, let's give the quick rundown just to make sure. Yeah, the quick rundown is that. You were using a thing called postal mail for this. We're not talking about email what? yet. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You, uh, so how do you how do you handle die rolls and all of that by postal mail? And the trick that was the generally generally the trick was you would use um, the stock market res, results uh, that were published in the newspaper. And what we you would do <laughs> is let's say what what's today? Today's January 29th. So I'm preparing my move, and I pick a day in the future. I pick February 1st as the day that my turn will resolve. I mail it off to my friend with my moves on it. You know, I look record where all my units are, and if there were combats involved, I record them and do the odds and you know the modifiers and all that. And there it is, just waiting for the results. Send it off to the, my my play partner. Play partner receives it on December sec on the February 2nd. Gets the newspaper from the first. And you go to the stock market sheet, and it goes by the sales. It doesn't go by the stock market price. So you say Apple, and you take the number of sales, and you divide it by six. And then the <laughs> remainder is the die roll, if it's a D6, of course. So um, <laughs> that means I couldn't have known when I submitted the move, I did not know what the result die roll would be, because I those stocks were in the future. Those transactions occurred in the future. The person on the other end would have access to that. And they could create, you know, they're writing in the column a five, a four, a three, and then they just resolve the combat, you know, as necessary, that, that sort of thing. So that's how you did it. Now, what that meant was, okay, you're recording the move on paper. You're writing down every unit, and you would have to, most of the maps, if you look back at most of the maps from that era, you'll see that the, the hex, hexes, you know, they're mostly these hexagonal grids on the maps, right? Uh, would have a number on it, or maybe it would say A6, you know, to be like a row and column kind of thing. So you would say, my unit, this unit, 2nd Panzer Division is on A6, you know, and then you're writing that all down uh, on this piece of paper. There were some clubs and things like AHICs and such you could belong to that would produce sheets that you could use for this to make it a little easier. And the moves would be recorded. So you would end up and you play, let's say you played a game, often it would take two years to play a game. Yet this may, because you know, think of it a turn going back and forth, it might postal mail, it might take a week or two to do like half a turn, you know, and you, it takes just a long time. Think life interferes with it and all of that stuff. But then, by the, but you, I would guess most players did not throw those sheets out as the game was going. You might have to, somebody might make a mistake. And that's another thing. If you made a mistake, you, uh, the, you didn't correctly apply a movement rule, so you put your unit in the wrong place, your 
opponent would have to mail the turn back to you. Oh, you, I guess you could get on the phone and say, what do you do? But that didn't happen too much. It would be mailed <laughs> back to you, and then you would go on from there. So uh, I think most players probably did keep those sheets and the correspondence that went them. That's the other thing. So let me talk about an archival artifact that relates to this. A few years ago, I acquired a copy of the game Stalingrad, which is sort of of the vintage you were just talking about. Avalon Hill game from that early, it was probably done around um, early 60s. Um, we acquired, managed to acquire a copy, just saw it listed somewhere and was able to get it that was had been owned uh, by a player who was involved in all these play-by-mail games. And he was also a member of what was called the MIT Simulation Society, which was a place where a lot of war gamers were and playing these kinds of games. And it said in the description of this object, which I felt was written for me, because I didn't know who else looking at this antiquarian catalog would have known what this stuff meant. But it said it had all, it had all these letters in there relating to a game that had been played by mail or games that had been played by mail i guess so we get this thing and it's basically the box stalingrad and then all these letters stuffed in the box from the 1960s and this this guy and so it is some of these sheets uh, uh people may know this but diplomacy was sort of the first game where this got system like this was widely applied Avalon Hill adopted it. So they these people at MIT knew all about this. Diplomacy was really popular on the East Coast. And it was stuffed with all these sheets, but it also had this correspondence between these people playing where they would say, like, you know, uh, you dummy, what did you, you know, you've, you, again, I'm having to tell you, you did this uh, rule, you applied this rule incorrectly, you know, the, the things about applying the rules. They're talking about little stuff about family gossip and things that are going on. <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's like, um, where like play by mail, play by mail game, or it might've been multiple games in a certain context, which was this MIT club. And we know about the importance of MIT, uh, for, for computer games and things like that, uh, is combined with this, uh, just a collection of correspondence around games where you can sort of see how people were interacting. In a few cases, you can see how many of these people identified here were had maybe like military ranks associated with them and things like that. I guess ROTC, perhaps. Uh, you can do a lot with that sort of stuff. And it's kind of there because of the play-by-mail system generating these kinds of materials like correspondence around the game. I don't know if I answered your question. I just went on no, a ramble. No, this is like super interesting, just, honestly. Yeah. Because I actually never thought about how y'all did the die rolls. I feel like I like really learned something interesting today. Like I could see the piece movement, but the die rolls, that's cool. Oh, I, uh, I played that way so many games. Uh, there was a uh, was an organization called AHICS, which stood for Avalon Hill, Hill Intercontinental Kriegspiel Society. Kriegspiel was the war A-H-I-K-S. And you join that, and you would get, um, you'd play, your games were recorded, your results, win or loss, would give you a ranking in different games. Uh, there's also a newsletter around AHICS that circulated, and I have, because I was part of that environment, not, not in the 60s, I was not, I'm not that old, but, you know, catching <laughs> up like, like in the 70s and into the 80s. Um, so there was a, a lot of infrastructure built up around games to, to, to support that, but 
none of it was online. Oh, maybe until I would say probably not at all until the eighties. Some some things started to be developed along some of the nascent online services and um, you know like Prodigy and things like that. CompuServe, you know, the, the, uh, some online games were developed at that point. But up up until that point, it was all paper and pencil, stamps, envelopes, you know, all that stuff. That is. That is really cool. I like that a lot. Um, so when you talk about archiving these these items, first, I, I just want to point out for people out there, like just because it seems like it's some random thing from your past that nobody would care about, that doesn't actually mean that that's true. Um, you know, yep. even in classics, right? Like the best the best Papyrus collection ever found, Oxyricus is a trash heap. So uh, I'm just saying, <laughs> your old your old war game papers might be worth something um, to someone. <laughs> but uh, also, how much of your archive I mean, do you have much board game stuff at all? And if not, is that something that people have started to think about? A, a really relevant question for us right now. Okay. We're uh, just this year, we are putting everything together to get really serious about collecting board games for the library. We have collected some. I mentioned the Stalingrad thing. We have. Um, you know, a copy of Jim Dunnigan's first game up against the wall. Um, you know, the game he did at Columbia University, you know, things like that. Uh, collected individually, those go to our special collections department, actually, because those are those uh, types of things are quite rare. We've done that a little bit. Uh, at the Silicon Valley Archives, we have a new space now where we can do events. And we have a thing called Tabletop Tuesdays that we do every month. So we've got a little collection of board games in-house to service that event. Basically, the structure of that event is we bring a speaker in to talk about a topic and then for for maybe half an hour, and then we spend an hour playing a related game. Um, so sometimes it can be a game that's related to Stanford by a theme. Let's say we had a Who Killed Jane Stanford thing, they, you know, around the book about uh, Jane Stanford's death that was written by a Stanford historian. We had to talk about that, and then we played a game of clue that my exhibits designer had transformed into a who kills jane stanford game we do <laughs> things like that but then we also will play like we just recently you know had a lecture about gems and we then played you know uh, a game about that so we've done that same we've started to build up a collection and i've started thinking about uh getting serious about the library collection part of it and there's a a very big positive reason for doing that and there's a very big problem with board games. And the big positive, big. yeah, big. Uh, the big, the big good reason is that board games are print artifacts, and that's right. And that is much easier for libraries to see as like a tradi core traditional sorts of things. And many people in a library who couldn't care less about board games, maybe playing them. Uh, can appreciate particularly the current wave of games. There's so many just beautifully printed um, maps and things like that. There have been several couple of exhibits now in libraries about uh, game maps. Um, so that part of it fits really nicely into the library world uh, in a way that maybe the digital games project was more like a new media sort of project al along with other things like that that are uh, in this we're doing stuff in addition to the traditional sort of library. So that's a good reason. 
The problem is you've got a board game with 500 components and somebody's going to check that out. Uh, what are we going to do when they return it? How are we going to, how are we going to, and it's fascinated me because uh, this goes back a little bit to a question you asked about earlier. Uh, there, We're not the only institution that's understanding the need to start collecting board games. There are others. And I received, when, when it, a library, an academic library somewhere decides to collect games, digital or board games, they usually call me because they think I know something about it, you know, like just because of the history that Stanford has had. In the case of board games, I really don't because we haven't really collected that much. But the nice thing about that is I hear about what when people call me, they tell me, oh, and I've also talked to somebody at this place or that place, and they did this and they did that. So I've been hearing about all the different mechanisms some libraries have put into place to deal with the problem of circulating board games. Um, uh, it's, it's very interesting. And, you know, it, we're going to have to think about things like uh, probably creating manifests for games that don't have them. Or uh, another one, uh, believe it or not, is accurately weighing games. Uh, one of the things I've heard about, there's a university that does this, is they do very precise measurement of the board game. And when, uh, and I know pe there are going to be people out there thinking like, no, this won't work, but actually it probably works most of the time, I'm going to say. But <laughs> When the game comes back after it's been used, if, if it circulates, comes back, they weigh it. And if by this very precise measurement, it's the same weight, they don't check the components. They assume that everything is still in the box. And if, if the weight is off, then they, they go to a manifest and they actually have to look at things. If you think about it, I'm in the war game world, there's no game that has less than a few hundred components, you know, the, the cardboard. And if you, if you have three, three um, counters missing, the game could be is probably not going to be playable. Uh, yeah, it's so, entirely, yeah. So it, it's that's a big problem. Uh, we've now identified a vendor that we can use to buy games. You know, with a library, you know, it's a different thing than just buying a game like an individual would. There's you have to go through a process. It has to be received, cataloged. Uh, it has to go someplace. We had to figure out where we were going to shelve them. We had to figure out a space for people to use them and all of that. But the momentum is there. And in, in fact, it's kind of strange because we've already heard coincidentally, it's not be, uh, for any other reason, we've already heard there's a, uh, a board game club on campus that I had not known about who just happened to contact us a few weeks after we you know, put the system into place saying, you know, we'd like does the library have a space for us to play games for our, for, the, for our club? And they, they do focus on historical games. So, you know, we're moving in that direction. And I predict um, just based on the importance of board game design in recent years and the innovation that's occurring in that space that institutions that are serious about uh, documenting game design and providing examples of uh, of important game design are going to have to start thinking about board games. So when you say documenting examples of important game design, I know that in any archive, right, you're going to have to make choices. I think especially with board games, like I have to make choices in my own home because I do not have unlimited space and those boxes are big. Um, how do you, how do you decide like what games you want to 
collect? Is it like you just take whatever people give you? If somebody gives you something, you just end up keeping it. Are all board games important to documents? Are certain, you know, I, I, I wonder about this. <laughs> Especially because yeah. some have tiny print runs. They just disappear to the ether the second yeah. they're printed, maybe. Yeah. Uh, and there's a little bit there. Like with digital games, the distribution channels are changing a lot for board games. Uh, if you think about it nowadays with board games, so much of what you buy, you pre-order through, you know, GMT has its, what is it, P500 games yeah. or Kickstarter, you know, projects and all that, all that stuff. Um, uh, it's not as straightforward as just like ordering a game that, you know, and game stores are not as plentiful as they used to be where you can go in and look around at things. So, um, it's a mix of opportunities that come up that you just happen, you know, a game, a person contacts you about a collection they have, or, you know, it might not be, uh, the person, a person contacts you would maybe has a Stanford degree. So they thought they would contact Stanford first. They tell you about the games they design. It they may not have been on your radar at all. They may be a kind of game that you, that you know, like speaking of me personally, that I don't know about. Uh, but it's a complete archive of when I designed this game. You look, you say, okay, this is a known game in this other genre. It's a I don't know a Barbie game or something like that. Um, I don't know much about that, but wow, this is this person has really saved everything they did on this project. That's interesting. So that opportunity might be something uh, that drives an acquisition. Then uh, you add to it your own personal predilections, you know, what you like, what you know about. That's part of it. That's they, The curators are hired because of their subject knowledge. And in my case, you know, there's things I will, I am pretty confident about the kinds of games I mentioned before, like if it's a sports game or a historical game or or a, um, a war game, I'm pretty confident I know which, which ones to get or which ones are like a game series that's published 10 titles. But, eh, you know, it doesn't really add all that much. You know, I, there might be things like that where I sort of pass on, you know, I figure it's not, we don't need to have that, especially considering all the space and all it would use. So there's that. And then, you know, you um, think about your own situation. For your own games you make choices all the time it's the same it's the same for the library you know you you i remember hearing um at the san diego historical games convention um the gmt folks were saying they're up to publishing around 100 games a year something like that uh when they started out i think I, I'm, I'm making the numbers up because i don't remember them exactly but they i think they said that maybe their first year they published like maybe three or four games and you know there's a massive number of games Nobody, well, there, there are some rich people around who can buy every game, I'm sure, but and have the interest. But most of us can't buy 100 GMT games every year, right? So we're going to make selections. We're going to choose that something will define our interests. We might say, I'm only interested in solitaire. We might say, I only want to play short games or, you know, wh whatever, you know, hour-long games. Or somebody might say, I'm a, I'll only play games about World War II and I want them as detailed as as possible you know those, those kinds of things well i might make similar decisions i might do something because a faculty member is working on colonialism so i'll say yeah imperial struggle that's going in the collection uh you know and, and that that kind of thing so it's a lot of different considerations that you kind of track all at the same time and compared to what's available i, I left out one thing which i mentioned with the stalingrad 
uh, example. There's also antiquarian games, you know, the games that are no longer in print that come up in various ways. So it may also be something like um, out of my own interest or somebody I know is working on a project. You say it's, there's interest in the early history of SPI as a company. And so I'm going to try to get these games from the late 60s to mid-70s. And that means that could be a years-long effort, you know, of tracking different places where eBay and things like that, where where games might be offered. There's just a lot of, every day is different. There's just a lot of different things that you have to do. That sounds great, though. Uh, so I do have yeah. a question. Then, so we've talked a lot about tracking on physical media. One one advantage, I guess, and disadvantage of board games, right, is that they take up a lot of space. They're physical objects that you can track down and look at and touch. So I guess you know, for video game collecting, um, what is going to happen when people no longer own games and are thus not able to donate them because they're all something we streamed? Right. You know, I, I alluded to that briefly before. Yeah. There's, a, there's an essay by uh, Eric Haltman, who used to work for me. He got his PhD at Santa Cruz. Uh, he's now at the University of Alberta. He works on a, he's, he has a kind of computer science degree and has worked on game preservation, but he's also a historian. He's kind of a mix of everything. And he wrote an essay when he, actually, while he was still working with our How They Got Game Project at Stanford, he wrote an essay called something like, Why Current Game Preservation Won't Work Anymore. The, the title is something like that. And that's basically what you just described. Uh, all of the game preservation stuff that I was so chirpy about before, I was saying, like, we've solved all the technical problems, right? Right. Oops. And you mentioned Oops. things changing and updating, but, like, at least you could get a disc. But yeah. now. Oops. Yeah. So it's going to be a mix of two or three different things that will get us there. One will be, one thing we talked about before, players figuring out some things uh, that they can do. So that we've seen that with uh, these servers, for example, that people have, have uh, created around online games. There's a lot of, uh, I'll use the word discussion about this in the copyright law realm. You know, the op op uh, copyright office is uh, looking at some possible exemptions to the Digital Millennium Copyright Act to, that might make pro provide some more access to things like that. But technically, that's not legal. Uh, but some players have done it for various reasons. They want to play the game or they want to make a machinima movie using the environment, but they want to apply some of their own tools to it. They can't do that in the regular game, so they they do their own game. And they, they maybe collect a bunch of updates to the game and things like that. So some clever, tech-savvy players are going to come up with some workarounds and some projects that they do that deliver something that will be useful in understanding some of the games that are like what you've just described. Uh, and some of that will wind its way to libraries with digital repositories and such, or to the Internet Archive, for example. That's one thing. Uh, I think the Internet Archive place is a one place, by the way, that's likely to tackle some projects. Uh, maybe to sort of see if they can capture updates of software. But, you know, if you add up all of the software, game software that runs on a on rapid updating, you know, the service model, it is a gigantic, massive amount of data that uh, requires everything to be in place, correct sequencing, you know, all this stuff. Uh, 
it's it's just a massive resource problem. But some some places, Internet Archive players are going to figure out a few examples, and we probably don't need to say. I hate to say this, people won't like to hear this, but we probably don't need to save every such game to understand the way these games work. Uh, right. I'm confident there will be some examples, and then for the rest, where we don't have maybe a version that's playable, that's where the documentation comes in, and that's where players can, by the way, also can play a huge role. If if you've done, if you have a game where you've recorded your replays and you have them in some way that's accessible, don't you know? Think about saving them. Think about put the, you know, uploading them to the Internet Archive or. Ask it, you know, if you've got them in a way to transfer them, maybe Stanford can take them if they're, uh, you, you know, a place that has, that, that has the technology to do that can preserve the video files of, of gameplay. Uh, people do walkthroughs, people do gameplays, people do documentaries based on game worlds, fictional movies, you know, all kinds of things, collections of screenshots. I remember in Second Life, when we did a project in Second Life, we learned about somebody who was there who had a thing when you, when they were walking around in the world that their system was set up to take a screenshot every second something like that and there's a massive screenshot library that was sequenced according to like where they walked through second life um so we can imagine that some of those things will survive and they'll give us yeah um some idea of things and don't despair because we don't have complete archives of every person who ever lived, you know, in human history. We don't have anything like that. Uh, but if we can get a good amount of material that's strategically put together, you know, that that tells us, at least in a few cases, how games like that worked or what people did in them, that's going to be very important to have. And we should see it, you know, as a glass half full situation when we've done that. Not that is a that is a negative thing that's that maybe some that maybe that we can't play every game that's ever existed. Well, that's something that grieves me regardless. But <laughs> uh, so before yeah. I ask you, a, yeah. So before I ask you a couple of easy questions, I guess I'll ask you maybe the hardest question. I don't know. I think you think about it though. Um, so you know, working on games is interesting for me. Uh, in part because, you know, when I try to take games seriously and write about them, I get pushed back from one end. It's like, well, I just want to play a game and have fun. Like, why do you have to, or you know, get so into it? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, also the first time I got excited because of my blog, gotten some views, I told uh, the school nurse who dropped by that I was really excited because I had this blog about games and like more people had read it than I expected. And she goes, oh, Liz, why don't you write about something that matters? <laughs> so why does it matter? Why do all of these years of collecting all of these projects, all of these attempts to preserve gaming history, um, why do you think that they matter? I'm going to say that was by far the easiest question you, you asked Good. Me. Yeah, I figured you'd be the type. <laughs> the, answer is, the answer is you cannot understand our times without games and other digital media, and other related digital media. Simple as that. Doesn't you... You may not care at all about games, but you cannot understand our world if you know nothing about digital games. And I'll give you one example. Uh, whatever you think about our current political environment, um, that environment and the way we use online media and such um, owes a lot to online forums and such that 
throughout of the game world. You know, if you're thinking about Gamergate, 4chan, you know, all of those things, there's strong connections with the game world. Game world, and in fact, the politics uh, on the right side of the spectrum, there are a number of people who are active in Gamergate or who, who are active there. So you cannot tell a complete story of that part of our culture and our politics without some reference to what was going on in game culture. Doesn't mean you have to understand like the lore of every game that was ever created or have to be an expert on what a first person shooter is or that sort of thing. But you, uh, just like you would do, you would rely on a historian or some other person, assuming you still respect experts, you know, you would still rely on somebody else's account for, for um, any area of the history of our times. Likewise, there are going to be people that are going to need the documentation about games to do that work on games. And that, in turn, will be a piece of the puzzle for, every, for everything else that involves our times. If you were to say, forget it, games aren't important, everything about games disappears, no archives, nothing, we're not going to deal with that because it just wasn't important, you're uh, going to find out that a lot of things uh, that you do consider important by however you, uh, whatever your metrics are for this important scale, things that, that you think are important for the late 20th century, early 21st century are not possible to write about without that. So that's the argument that I would make is that it's not about games. It's about our history, our culture, and games are a piece of that. So the the history, the justification for historical attention to games is the same as the justification for anything else. I like it. Although I also know that you must be playing games for fun in a career like yours. So what have you been playing recently that brings you some, brings you some joy? Um, well, unfortunately, I tend to play games where it, they bring me joy and they also make me feel like I'm still at work. Uh, <laughs> you know, I like I, I uh, so EFC, I play. EAFC, I play, you know, uh, that football game, football folks, uh, the real football. Um, and uh, I play a, I play a, um, a pay-to-play game called Ebony quite a bit. That's an online game. It's a uh, sort of, sort of, so loosely based on history. It's not really a historical game, but it's got a lot of fun um, references to history in it, and it's got a the community of people I play with is pretty good. And those are games that, you know, like are uh, persistent world games, basically. A lot's going on. Every day there are events in those games, and so it's, it's a lot of your attention. Besides that, that's my digital world game playing, and that's about it. The, everything else I play because I'm doing research on something. Board games, I'm much more all over the place. Uh, today, I was playing a little bit, a few turns earlier, and we'll finish tonight with my, one of my, my, one of my sons is visiting. Um, oh, and I just blanked on the it's the er, ah shoot! It's that early coin-inspired game about uh, the war on terror. Why am I blanking on the name of it? Labyrinth. Uh, uh yes, thank you. Um, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just want my my, man, my mind just went blank there. Uh, we're playing that right now. Uh, we were playing Flashpoint. My other son was visiting a week before, and we played Flashpoint, South China Sea. Um, I've got a. a 
couple of solitaire games. You know, those those games about the the island battles, Tarawa is the, is the more recent. Yeah, one. the D Day ones. Uh, yeah, D Day. Yeah. Uh, I've playing. I have that set up um, with, uh, but I I move around a lot. But online board games, I play with both of my sons, and we play a, a lot of. Pretty much, we're playing either coin games, uh, or games based with my other son on the Paths of Glory system. So that's uh, um, I'd say my really like um, exploratory fun, where I actually allow myself to play different things, uh, is in the board game realm. Fantastic! Sounds like you're living the dream, honestly. And then for people who are interested in following you and your work, uh, where can you be found online? Where can I be found online? Well, I'm at Stanford. Uh, uh, at, there's a. Uh, I would just say look up my name, Henry Lowood. It's a pretty unique name because it's uh, um, a bad translation of a German name. Uh, and uh, you can look up the How They Got Game project um, at Stanford. Or I actually, I guess I would recommend is the, looking at the Silicon Valley archives, sva.stanford.edu. Um, so SVA for Silicon Valley Archives. And there you can see the projects that we're doing, the oral history work that we're doing, the tabletop games series and follow things like that. Um, yeah, on I kind of back and slowly away from Twitter. So, uh, But if people want to find me there, they can find me at Liebenwalde, which is L-I-E-B-E-N-W-A-L-D-E. -E -E. Um, that's the correct spelling of my name uh, uh got it <laughs> yeah back well my father's name i don't um not my name um so uh that's the name that was badly translated um things like that all over i'm scattered let's as with everything else in my life i'm just kind of scattered around that you know what i feel like that's just a modern technological life <laughs> well we can but you have a podcast everybody beyond solitaire that's liz and they go there and all your stuff is there and I don't have anything like that. Just make a YouTube channel. Just put everything there. <laughs> oh, that's so much work. Uh, I really, I have to say, I really ad admire the work that you do. Um, the Everybody knows this already, but it's a great, it, it's uh, the assembly of interviews as a total. It's just an amazing snapshot of people thinking about games and design. Um, so, yeah, kudos. Man, kudos to you. I'm so excited about your work too. So we will probably be revisiting this in the future. Oh, super. You know what? You know <laughs> um, how to get a hold of me. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but for now, Henry, thank you so much for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. This is super exciting for me and hopefully for everybody out there. Um, yeah, so we really appreciate so. it. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody, please like, subscribe, comment, ask questions, and most of all, happy gaming.